Well, good evening. I'll invite you to go ahead and open up in your Bibles to the book of Titus. While you're doing that, just let me mention a couple things. Um, you know, Brother Mike, I wanted to tell you that the dramatic pause is a very powerful rhetoric tool, but uh, it, it's not intended between verses of a song. So might just tuck that away as a piece of advice. So, all right. On a more uh, serious and genuine note, uh, despite uh, or in addition to the, the prayers that just went out, I, I just uh, can't help and feel compelled to speak on behalf of all of us as a church body and saying um, how deeply burdened we are uh, for... Um, the loss that uh, the gals and the cricks are experiencing going through, and we want to assure them of our prayers, of our thoughts, and I know that uh, everyone here has been much in prayer and very concerned since we received that unexpected news this week, so I just want to share that on behalf of the church tonight as well. Of course, the important thing was the prayer that just preceded. All right, uh, we come... Tonight, to what's probably not a surprise to you, you, you might recall that in July when I had this opportunity, I uh, gave what I called a snapshot of a Bible book, and I'm going to do the same thing tonight. I, I want to give a snapshot of the book of Titus. Um, I've chosen Titus because it's, again, one of the lesser known books of the New Testament, and so my purpose tonight is to kind of help us put the book of Titus in context, help us maybe have a fuller understanding of, of the man Titus, who he was, what his role was, and uh, why the book was written, how it's practical to us, and uh, some of these things. So I guess in introducing a snapshot to the book of Titus, we would probably begin by saying, well, what do we already know about the book? And I was thinking about that. Probably uh, the most well-known memory verse from the book of Titus is Titus 3.5. I'm pretty confident that that would be the most well-known memory verse. So don't look at it. Uh, I'm going to see if maybe we can quote it from memory. Uh, maybe I'm presuming too much in doing that. And uh, just as you never hear me singing alone, uh, I don't want you to hear me trying to quote a Bible passage uh, alone from memory. Uh, but let's give it a shot, all right? Uh, if, if you know it, go ahead and say it. If you don't know it, then go ahead and cheat and take a look. Uh, but Titus 3.5, let's see if we can get that uh, as best as possible uh, from memory. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. I, I might have got something wrong there, but at least that's how it comes back to my mind. That's a very well-known verse of Scripture, and uh, it gives us a little insight into some of the emphasis in the book of Titus, which we'll get to in a moment. Uh, but I would guess that that's probably one of the first things that would come to your mind. Uh, maybe if I were to 
take time, and I won't, but just to, to ask you, what else do you think of? Probably a, a number of you would say, well, it's one of the pastoral epistles. And that's exactly right. That's one of the unique things about the book of Titus, is it's one of the three pastoral epistles, as they are called, which means it was written to a pastor. It was written to the pastor Titus. Uh, and uh, so the Apostle Paul is writing to Titus, as he did to Timothy. So the book of 1 Timothy, the book of 2 Timothy, those are pastoral epistles, and uh, largely advice given to men in the ministry. And then this book of Titus contains the same sort of thing. Uh, if you're going to make a distinction, uh, you would readily discern if you read through those three books that the books of 1 and 2 Timothy are far more personal between Paul and Timothy uh, as opposed to Titus. Titus is a bit more of a formal epistle, and uh, yet it is definitely uh, a pastoral epistle, and it includes some admonitions directly to Titus. And uh, then I think also, and it goes right along with what I just said, many of you would say just right off the top of your head, ah, Titus, that's one of those few places where we get the qualifications for pastors. And you're correct. We have a list in Titus of the qualifications for a pastor, uh, just as we have in the uh, book of um, 2 Timothy, I believe. So, uh, so we come here then to the uh, uh, background. Let me give you a little bit of background Titus is, is kind of a unique person to be highlighted in the New Testament because he is a Gentile convert. And that was a disability to him early on in his ministry. There was a lot of prejudice against him among Jewish believers because of his, him being a Gentile uh, believer, but also being elevated to such a high and important position in the early church. So that was something that he had to personally contend with as a Gentile convert of the Apostle Paul. Uh, and Titus was also a co-worker of the Apostle Paul. He was a right-hand man uh, to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul entrusted a lot to him and leaned on him. And uh, tonight I want to fill in some of the gaps of just what a significant role Titus played in uh, helping the Apostle Paul accomplish some of his purposes, particularly with the Corinthian believers. We'll get to that in a moment. So uh, he accompanied the Apostle Paul on his second trip when he went to Jerusalem to meet with the Jewish believers there and the leadership of the church to report on his second missionary journey. And it was there at that time where Titus was accepted by the Jewish leadership uh, there uh, in Jerusalem uh, as, uh, as, as a leader, uh, as, as a leading pastor of the early church. And even more importantly, it was a turning point when the early church recognized uh, 
that unlike the Old Testament dispensation, in the New Testament dispensation, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And the New Testament church is not a distinctively Jewish organization. And so that uh, is maybe not a big deal for us to comprehend at this time in history, but if we can put ourselves back in the first century, I can assure you that was the key issue. Uh, that was a great concern to the Apostle Paul, and it was a huge uh, accomplishment uh, of uh, requiring divine intervention that accomplished that transition uh, in the minds of Jewish believers to accept the distinctiveness of the New Testament church. You might even be remembering the vision that came down to Peter. Uh, uh, and the Lord said, you know, uh, you know, don't call unclean what I, what I call clean. In other words, that, that vision saying, you know, take the gospel to the Jews or to, to, to the Gentiles. Now, <clears throat> It seems, although it's not explicitly stated, that Titus played a key role in defending the Apostle Paul. Uh, we've even heard recently in some of the messages here at church about how the Apostle Paul uh, had a tenuous relationship with the uh, believers at Corinth and how after he had planted that infant church and he had left it, there were Judaizers that came in, and those that were uh, really motivated by money and, and prestige and other uh, impure motives to get the allegiance of the, and the prominence in that Corinthian church. And you will recall that the Apostle Paul wrote a very stern letter of 1 Corinthians to the believers there, recognizing that they were in great peril, that if they persisted in listening to these people and going in the direction they were going um, in their carnality, uh, that uh, their church would uh, be impotent and would eventually dissolve. And uh, thankfully, we know the end of the story, they did respond uh, humbly uh, and spiritually to the message that they received from the Apostle Paul. But what we may not realize and is not really explicitly stated is that Titus probably played the key role in defending the Apostle Paul uh, in causing uh, or furthering uh, the process of bringing a response from the Corinthian believers to that stern letter. And uh, what a blessing it was when he reported back to the Apostle Paul that they had responded well, and there was a, a letter in between that's not part of inspired scripture, and then finally the Apostle Paul wrote back 2 Corinthians, which has a much different tone. So uh, it's really interesting to see that Paul leaned on Titus to help accomplish that vital purpose there. Um, you know, we have in the day in which we live today, you have, you have men who will sometimes go to a, a, a struggling church and try to rebuild it, try to strengthen it, try to address weaknesses. 
And uh, not that those men intend to necessarily be the pastor, but they have that role. And we see that in our day, and we rejoice when it's successful. Uh, And uh, this is a biblical example of that very thing. Now, Titus was also entrusted with the role of gathering the collection from the Corinthian believers for the suffering believers in Jerusalem, to the Jewish believers. And what a beautiful picture it is of Christian charity and love that the Gentile believers, who had so much Jewish prejudice against them, even by Jewish Christians, gave, as we read in 2 Corinthians, above their ability, out of love, to meet the need of the suffering believers who were for the most part, Jews. And it's a beautiful picture of the heart that we should have. And so uh, Titus played that key role in gathering and taking that um, collection. Um, But he's most known, of course, for the role he played where? The island of Crete, right. In the island of Crete where Paul sent him and uh, told him to set things in order. He really uh, performed an apostolic role there. He wasn't the pastor of the church of Crete. Crete had a number of infant churches, and the Apostle Paul wanted Titus to go there and set those churches in order. And uh, there were a lot of problems in those infant churches, a lot of need for teaching, and Titus played that vital role. So, having given that background, uh, I have a thought for us to ponder. Uh, Since Titus was obviously a key figure in the New Testament, his name is actually mentioned 12 times outside of the book of Titus, Uh, And he was a close companion and co-laborer with the Apostle Paul. Isn't it surprising and remarkable that he is not mentioned in the book of Acts? Can you think of any reasons why that might be? How could a man of such importance to that generation not even be mentioned in the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church. Well, you might be thinking of some reasons right now, not that they're stated for us, but it's a good thing to ponder and think about. Uh, It's a surprising situation. And I think there are a couple ideas as to why that might be. Uh, First of all, as I just mentioned, he was given the stewardship of collecting and taking the collection from the Corinthian believers to Jerusalem. And you could almost view that as the proving point, or you might call it the turning point in that difficult process of the Jewish believers accepting this uncircumcised pastor who was even fulfilling an apostolic role. And um, so... It, uh, it could have been premature to be 
highlighting him before that late event. And going along with that, uh, a second reason that's related to it, the, the uncircumcised Gentile leadership in the early church was only slowly accepted by the Jewish believers. Uh, it was a gradual process. It was one of the key, top, most significant, thorny doctrinal issues of the first generation. And we need to keep in mind that it is hard to change quickly in anything. And we can just say, oh, well, you know, it's right, so do it, you know. But people don't easily change. And sometimes a wise pastor recognizes the need to take some time to bring about needed changes in a ministry. I think this might be a biblical example of that very thing taking place. Um, I'll give you an example uh, from something I learned just this past week. Uh, I was down at the golf uh, for about five days uh, visiting uh, my son and, and daughter-in-law and had a great, wonderful time. And um, as I was down there and, and talking to him, and uh, I became aware of, of a project that he's working on, and, and I got some education on, on a subject. And it goes right along with this idea of being able to adjust to a new idea or, or to something different. Even our physical bodies are made that way. Uh, you will be aware that uh, we have a vestibular system in our ear that's very much like a, uh, a divinely uh, designed gyroscope uh, that tells us, even with our eyes closed, which way we're, we're moving. Uh, in conjunction with that, our brains process what our eyes see. So I see something, and my vestibular system agrees with that, and my brain has a very good idea of exactly what's going on in my environment. But when those two inputs disagree, what happens? Vertigo or nauseousness. And it can be extreme. If my eyes are seeing one thing and my vestibular system is experiencing something very different, I'm going to get very sick very quickly. That is and has been for years the greatest obstacle for men training to be fighter jet pilots. As a matter of fact, if they can't overcome rather quickly and acclimate to that phenomenon, they're just rerouted to other programs. And it's been a real problem. And up until recently, up until the current time, the only way to overcome that, to acclimate to it, is to go through the suffering of a centrifuge and then actually get into an airplane and go experience it and hold on to the, the special bag that has a special purpose. You know? And you hope, as a matter of fact, my son told me you get about three, maybe four flights. And if you're still having major problems, you're out. And now, because some people's bodies can't acclimate that quickly, some people's bodies can never acclimate. Now, 
with the VR headsets, there is the opportunity, and this is actually a project my son is, is um, researching right now. That's why he told me all about it. And he's writing uh, a large paper on this subject for how the Air Force could start using personalized training with the headsets to simulate that uh, mixed signal and experience the uncomfortable feeling, but being able to tailor it to each individual to help them get through the process. And undoubtedly, a lot more men will get through the process and not be failed out of the program. And uh, matter of fact, I had the opportunity while I was down there to put a headset on and uh, go through that experience where my vestibular is not moving, but my eyes are seeing a lot of movement. And I didn't last more than about 30 seconds, and I didn't feel good for 30 minutes. And I had enough of that. Uh, but it really illustrates that change is difficult. But over a process of time, we acclimate until those guys can, can, can fly those flights without hardly any problem. And likewise, in a spiritual sense, uh, we may have preconceived ideas that we brought with us into our Christian lives, maybe from our religious upbringing, maybe from a certain denominational background we were in, maybe from just a misunderstanding we had from the way we always read the Bible and understood it. And it is a challenge to, to change. And uh, so anyway, I just wanted to emphasize that that's one of the things we see here as a huge challenge to the early church. And it's not surprising uh, that it took time for the Jewish believers uh, to lay aside some of the vestiges of Judaism. Now, <clears throat> let me say that Paul wrote this epistle uh, around 62 to 66 AD, definitely after uh, writing 1 Timothy, and uh, uh, he was on his way to Nicopolis. There's actually several cities by that name, but that's on the west coast. It's on the west coast of uh, Greece. And uh, so let me give you some unique qualities of the book of Titus. Um, uh, the things that stand out from studying the book. It's one of the most valuable books in the New Testament on the subject of grace and works. All of Christian history uh, has struggled with understanding the relationship between grace and works. Uh, you're probably well aware of the huge struggle that Martin Luther had with grace and works. And coming out of a works-based religion like Roman Catholicism, uh, you can well understand that. And then we live in a day and age where the pendulum and much of Christianity has swung the other way. And uh, as long as you have grace, there's no need for works. And so we see that the book of Titus, uh, in a, a less strong way than the book of James, teaches us about grace and works. As a matter of fact, let's look at chapter 2. Uh, chapter 2 and uh, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, 
we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now, if you took a half hour and just kept rereading that and thinking it through and letting it sink in, you would be hard-pressed to find so few words that say so much to help us understand exactly what grace and works are and how they relate to each other. And without one, there's not the other. There's no works without grace. And there's no grace without the fruit of works. And uh, this passage right here begins with grace and ends with works, which is the proper order, and shows us uh, that we must expect that it is the natural outflowing uh, that works flow from the grace of God that is worked in our hearts. And uh, that's one of the best passages in the scriptures on that. Uh, but there's more. Uh, if you look at chapter 3, uh, let's look at verses 4 to 7. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs unto the hope of eternal life. So, uh, again, you see the scriptures constantly warning us, don't go too far in one direction or the other, which is our human natural tendency uh, to overemphasize one or the other. I, I would submit to us, you cannot overemphasize grace and you cannot overemphasize works. You can only misunderstand them. And to the degree that they don't perfectly harmonize with each other, that's the degree to which we're not understanding them. And that's what we learn here from the book of Titus. Um, and uh, let's see. That's, I have some other verses here, but let's go ahead and move on. Uh, we learn in the book of Titus that Paul was well-read. He wasn't only a theologian. Uh, he also knew a lot of things even about the literature of his day. Uh, it's almost surprising we find, uh, look in uh, chapter 1, verse 12, what we, something quite unusual uh, for the Scriptures. You know, we quote the Scriptures. We seldom find the, the Scriptures quoting other literature. <laughs> Uh, one of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. <laughs> so Paul is quoting someone else to, because uh, he doesn't want to be so bold as to make a pronouncement on, of such uh, degrading uh, uh, qualification here or description. Uh, and this also relates to Acts 17, 28. I won't take time to turn there, where Paul 
actually quotes uh, one of the poets. Um, it doesn't mean that what the poet said was inspired. Just because something is in Scripture doesn't mean that that thing was inspired. It just means that what the Scripture says about it is inspired. So if the Scriptures are quoting a poet or some other thing outside of the Scriptures, we need to ask what are the Scriptures showing us here and teaching us here. It is absolutely not saying that some other literature has the same standing as the Word of God. Now, uh, so that really brings us to this question after reading that quote, which was not uh, very much of a compliment. Uh, who wore the Cretans where Titus spent his ministry laboring? I will say that Titus needed a lot of patience. He needed a lot of wisdom as he dealt with what was, from a cultural point of view, a very materialistic society. We can all understand that in the day in which we live. So he was fighting the materialistic culture of the day from the outside. And then from the inside, he had a battle of equal or greater proportions with the Judaizers. And uh, whether they were uh, truly born-again people or not, there were a lot of legalistic Judaizers within the flock that were... Um, spreading false doctrine, and uh, hurting the growing church. So that was, those were the two headaches uh, that uh, Titus experienced in the ministry there. And uh, I'm sure there were times that he looked around and said, well, I, maybe I could be a pastor over there. If I could just get off the shores of this island, this cursed island, if I could just be there or there, uh, it, would, uh, it would be so much better. And uh, so uh, that's, what, uh, that's what he, uh, he was tempted to feel. And, you know, it really reminds me that if we're going to be laboring somewhere and it's where God's put us, we need to stay there. It may be that God wants us to be a flower in the desert, and it shouldn't be our circumstances per se that are the driving force. Uh, whether we go to begin with or whether we ultimately move on uh, in the will and plan of God, it needs to be for the same reason, because of God's leadership in our life. Now, uh, that brings us to another point. Uh, and I've already mentioned this, but let me just state it outright. There are probably two other books in the Bible that are most like Titus. One of them would be the other pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, two books there. Uh, but then the other one, again, as I alluded to earlier, the book of James, because of the themes of works and grace. So when you think of Titus, and you think of companion, past, uh, companion books, those would be the other books in the New Testament that are most akin to the content that we find here in the book of Titus. So, uh, let me very quickly now, in the minutes we have left, um, just give an overview of the content, which is really not much. It's a, it's a very short book. Uh, chapter 1, uh, you have... Uh, the teaching there 
about appointing elders, and Titus is sent to appoint elders, to appoint pastors, um, and also you have the direct teaching there on the qualifications of a pastor. Then when you get into chapter 2, the Apostle Paul uh, begins to give direct admonitions to various age groups or sectors of the believers within the church. In other words, every teaching that goes forth from the pulpit isn't equally applicable to every person sitting in the pew. There may be one verse of scripture that a pastor is dealing with in a, in a message, and it's going to particularly be applicable more than, than to others, to those maybe that are unmarried, or to those who are in school, or to those who are senior citizens. Uh, that's not discriminatory, that's just reality. And we find here a passage of scripture that is quite interesting because in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, Now, let me give some instructions, uh, first of all, to the aged men. I'm going to give some instructions to the aged men. In other words, I know that older men struggle with these temptations and tend to fall into these traps, so let me give you some admonitions. Then he says, Now I have something to say to the aged women. And he gives instructions to the aged women. Now, I looked really carefully at this particular section. And I noticed that he does not define the aged women. And I think that he was very wise in, in that approach. And I'm going to follow his example. And I'm not going to define for us just who is and is not an aged woman. Uh, but if you think you might fall in that category, then those verses would apply to you. Uh, he also gives admonitions to young women and also to young men and then to servants. So in whatever walk of life you are in, you are going to have particular temptations that are stronger to you at that stage of life or in that setting. And Paul recognized that and the pastor needs to recognize that. And those who minister in spiritual leadership in a teaching or preaching role need to recognize that. It's a big reason why we have the Sunday morning Bible studies in split-up groups. It's following this example of recognizing that different segments of the church have legitimate special needs that need to be addressed specifically. And that's what we find here in the uh, book of Titus. And it's also maybe important to point out, Timothy or, or Paul had no confusion in his mind about these different groups. He had no problem knowing that this over here is a young man and this over here is a young woman. He never had to say, are you a him or are you a her? It was not in his vocabulary. It was not a part of the scriptures the scriptures have no trouble distinguishing between male and female uh, and between different legitimate groups that have special needs. And uh, it's an unbelievable tragedy that our society has slipped into some, such amazing uh, degradation uh, and depravity, and those are very weak words for it, indeed. Now, in chapter 3, uh, 
he tells Titus how to conduct himself as a pastor and how to teach the flock on various matters. So he gives some person-to-person instruction, and then he um, gives instructions to the flock, to everybody. And he tells them, you know, you need to recognize authority, don't have an attitude toward authority, accept authority and submit to authority. That's a part of life. And um, so any of us who struggle with authority that's legitimate, that's God-ordained, that's sinful. We need to deal with that. We need to submit and accept authority in our lives. He talks about speech and the importance of good speech, how we use our tongues. Uh, He talks, again, in a general way about good works as well. So a very practical chapter, and he concludes then with some general instructions. He mentions some names like Artemis, Tychicus, Zenos, Apollos, and, um, and really that wraps up the book. I don't want to quite end there. I want to conclude with a couple thoughts. And um, I want to give us a concluding spiritual lesson and a key text. Now, I gave earlier a well-known text that we have memorized, but um, there is a text that I would view more as a key text. Um, and uh, so let's, uh, let's turn over to chapter 2 and verses 7 to 8. I think if you just try to pick out a couple verses, hard to beat these. He says here, uh, in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Well, that's aspirational. (laughs) That's challenging. There's a thought to take home with us tonight. Titus 2, 7 to 8. There's a new memory passage from the book of Titus. Some of you may have already had that memorized. But that's a wonderful application passage from the book of Titus. And then finally tonight, uh, you know, a key spiritual lesson is this idea of contentment. I'm not taking it from one passage in particular, but we find, when I look at the life of Titus, I admire him for a number of things, but one of those is contentment. He was content to be a second-hand, uh, a second-hand man to the Apostle Paul. He was content to be an errand boy for the Apostle Paul, to use that terminology, Um, He was content to go to a place like Crete. Uh, He was content to deal with a really, really thorny issue uh, that was so divisive and difficult that the greatest leaders and minds of the day weren't able to get a hold of, and yet he had to go and deal with that that issue. And, uh, you know, it really comes down to something that I think is a major problem in many of our lives, maybe even more so in our American setting, and that's, in a word, contentment. If I'm a believer, 
If I know the Lord is my Savior, I have no reason not to be fully content. There may be needs in my life. No, there are needs in my life. There are great needs in my life. But I should always be content resting in the Lord. And there is a tremendous example here for us of that. And I look at a number of the men we read about in the New Testament, and, uh, you know, they, they uh, inspire me and they convict me. And one of those areas is in the area of contentment. Because uh, it's not easy to, to be content, to stay content. And uh, so many of the stimuli we have in our culture that you cannot get away from every single day its aim and purpose is to make us discontent. And unfortunately, our basic human nature is to be that way. And so it is a struggle for many, if not all of us. So I'll leave that with you tonight. And uh, with that, uh, let me close in a word of prayer, and we'll be dismissed. Our gracious God, we turn to you tonight as needy people carrying great burdens, but, Lord, also admonished, encouraged by the example of a man like Titus. Uh, Lord, uh, no flaw that's pointed out for us. Uh, a man who responded seemingly to, to all that he was asked and told. Uh, Lord, no doubt he entered into your glory with the words, well done, and so, Lord, we look at his example tonight, and we ask that you would help us with our weaknesses and our frailty and our failings. And, uh, Lord, it's, it can be so frustrating when we get victory and then a little time passes and, and then we fail again. And so, Lord, we, we do admit that to you, and we pray that um, you would uh, help us to be humble enough to confront these things in our lives and uh, give us the spiritual ambition to be uh, conformed to the image of Christ until the day that we are united with him and those who we so love who have preceded us into glory. We pray this in Christ's name.